a message planned on the, uh, um, the call that God has upon his people to hear his voice. And, and the Lord had really been stirring that message in my heart. I've been carrying it for some time now. But then as I, I came in here, I just felt like the Lord was saying, I want you to go a bit different of a direction this morning. And so I'm going to be doing that. I'm going to be doing the best to follow the Holy Spirit's guidance in all of this. And uh, what I feel led to talk to you about is actually, it was kind of confirmed with what, what Tim went ahead and talked about with Billy Graham. And uh, I think we'd all agree that this is just a tremendous man of God, that he's faithfully obeyed the call of God over his life. And, um, you know, there's, there's so much that we can learn as we look at a man like this. Uh, but one of the most profound things is, is a long obedience in the same direction, to quote one particular author. He's done one thing that God told him to do. Obviously, God told him to be an evangelist, right? And he walked in one direction, and he finished well. And that makes such a difference in the kingdom. When people carry what God has given them, and they just finish well. And, you know, the book of Ecclesiastes says the end of a thing is better than the beginning. And Billy Graham is going to have a tremendous close to his life. I think we will likely see... Um, several generations of presidents at his funeral. I think it's likely that leaders from other countries will come to honor him as he passes into eternity. We want to be people that live well, amen, and, uh, and finish well. And so um, what I'm going to be talking to you about is something called covenant because this really deals very strongly with how Billy Graham is able to do this. What did he do? How was he able to complete his walk? And uh, what I want to do today is is just to jump into the Bible as we look at this issue of covenant relationship. And so where we're first going to start is I'll just remind us about what happened at the Last Supper with Jesus. Do you remember that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the cup, amen? And then when he had given thanks, he came and he offered it to his disciples and he said, take and drink. This is the cup of my covenant, the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And of course, in that statement, Jesus was giving his disciples, and not only his disciples, amen, but everybody who's going to one day follow him, he was giving us the opportunity to enter into a very special kind of relationship with God, covenant relationship. And in that covenant, he was offering some amazing privileges. He was offering us acceptance in the eyes of the Father. He was offering us eternal friendship with a triune God. He was offering us every resource and blessing that we find in heavenly places. And truly, it was then and it still remains to be today an amazing, amazing offer. Can you say amen to that? But you know, in today's day and age, the concept of covenant is very little understood. Even in the church, there are a few that seem to really get it. And so for this reason, we're going to be exploring the topic of covenant today as we find it pictured for us in the life of King David. And in particular, I want us to look into one of the most important aspects of covenant with God, which is obeying God. That's where it relates to what Tim was talking about. Obeying God. And in order to accomplish all of these things, what we're going to be doing is delving into one of the most relevant chapters that we find in the life of David to the topic of covenant relationship. It's found in your Bibles in 2 Samuel chapter 7, so if you've got a Bible, just go ahead and begin to flip there now. And then uh, once we get there, we'll go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Wow, I'm just very excited about this. 
Heavenly Father, we thank You so much that You sent Jesus to covenant with us. That You gave us the opportunity to enter in this eternal friendship with You, Jesus. We're so thankful for the blood. We're so thankful that You poured out the Spirit, Jesus. That You give us the opportunity for such a wonderful relationship with You. And today, Lord Jesus, we pray that You would teach us. Teach us about what it means to be faithful to the end. Pray that you'd work this message in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the name of Jesus Christ, we agree. Amen, saints? Amen. So did you get there? 2 Samuel chapter 7. The story of God's covenant with David. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Everybody get there? Okay, we've still got a few stragglers. That's okay. Let me just briefly introduce what we're going to be looking at here. The scriptures reveal to us that God's covenant with David is among the most important promises of God that we find in the Bible. Save for his covenant with Abraham and then with Israel, it's of paramount significance. Because through it comes the birth of Jesus, comes the preaching of the gospel to the nations of the earth, without which none of us would be sitting in this room. Amen? So we need to understand 2 Samuel 7. Amen? Now, the backdrop for the story here, got to tell you, it's one of tremendous success in the life of David. Why, right here in the first verse, we find it said that God had given David rest from all of his surrounding enemies. Rest. Now, brothers and sisters, that was a truly monumental accomplishment. Because here we see that David had assigned the single task that the Lord had given to Saul, who was David's predecessor. Listen to the, the words of 1 Samuel 10.1 for a moment. They tell us that when Samuel was sent by God to go and take a flask of oil and anoint Saul to be the first king over Israel, at that time he brought him this charge from the Lord. He said, and you, meaning Saul, he said, and you shall save Israel from the hand of their surrounding enemies. Mm. So right here in 2 Samuel 7, we see that David had accomplished that. He had saved Israel from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And so with these great achievements behind him, David now begins to turn his attention to the state of his kingdom. And as he does, David sees something in his kingdom that really bothers him. So let's pick up the story here. Let's see what this is. Let's pick up the story here in verse 2. It says, Then David said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Now, look up at me. In order to understand the tension of that statement, you've got to understand something about this ark of God. The ark of God, you see, was a symbol for the throne of God and the rule of God in the midst of the company of the people of Israel. Farther back in the Bible in Exodus 25, when God commanded Moses to build that ark, he commanded him to build it with two angels, which were called cherubim. And they were to be perched on top of the ark, and their wings were to be aimed toward one another, and their faces were to be pointed down at the lid in reverent worship. You know that elsewhere the scripture says that God dwells enthroned between the cherubim. Amen. So the ark is a picture for the throne of God and the rule of God in the midst of his people. It's a picture of his chair. So now understand the rub here. David, at this point in his life, he knows that he knows that he knows 
that he's been appointed by God to be king over the nation of Israel. You ever have a moment like that in your walk? You just know you're in the will of God. <laughs> David's having one of those moments. And yet, at this point, he's ruling the nation from a house of cedar, but he can look out of the window of his palace, and he can see that the real king in Israel, who is God, amen, is ruling the nation from a tent. So David's kind of disturbed by this. Can you understand why? <laughs> and he begins to share his burden with Nathan the prophet. And how does Nathan respond? Well, let's, let's look at this. Verse 3. It says, Then Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. <laughs> in other words, David, you've accomplished far more than any of us have ever dreamed was even possible. You've given us rest from our surrounding enemies. You've risen to a status in the eyes of the people that borders on mythical in your lifetime. You're not even dead yet. So clearly the hand of God is with you. Therefore, go do all that is in your heart, for he'll surely continue to be with you. Now that makes sense from a human point of view, doesn't it? Right? Doesn't it? But now look how, look how God responds to David's heart cry. Look at this. Verse 4. It says, but that same night, everybody say, that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In other words, David, it's not broke. I don't need you to fix it. Right? Right? And then, and then he continues on with verse 8. Look at this. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over all my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the names of the great ones of the earth. It's quite a promise, amen? Now look at 11b. It says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers, and I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And now look at this, verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words. In accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Dearly beloved brothers and sisters, can you see the reversal that's taken place here? I mean, here David has had it in his heart to build a house for the name of the Lord. That's a good thing. But then God comes to David. He says to him, you don't understand what's really going on here, David. You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And your house and your kingdom are going to be established for all time, forever and always. Your kingdom shall reign. And of course, the ultimate fulfillment of this is found in the New Testament. With the birth of Jesus, whom the Bible calls the son of David. But you know, men and women, I'm not feeling impressed with the Spirit of God 
to preach to you this morning so much about the fulfillment of God's covenant with David in the New Testament. Instead, I'm feeling impressed to the Spirit of God to preach to you about the impact that this covenant, this promise of God, had upon the destiny of the nation of Israel. You see, because if you study the history of the kings that came after David, you find that almost without exception, they all turned away from the Lord. They began to follow after false gods. They led the nation of Israel away from the Lord into idolatry and eventually full-on apostasy. And as often as that happened, the Bible says that God became exceedingly angry with His people. And yet what you also find as you study this out is that God, time and again, for the sake of this promise and for David's sake, God spared the nation of Israel from judgment and certain destruction. The story all began with Solomon, who, if you remember, was David's son. Solomon began to turn away from the Lord and to follow after false gods. And so as a result of this, the Lord appeared to Solomon and said, Because you have not kept my covenant, I'm going to tear the kingdom from you. I will tear it from you, says the Lord. But then, because of his love for David, he said to Solomon, Yet I will not do it in your lifetime, but in your son's. So that, quote, David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me. And so for this reason, when a man named Jeroboam began to reign over the nation of Israel in place of Solomon's son, the Lord came to Jeroboam. And he said to him, you shall not rule over all 12 tribes of Israel, but only 10. So that, quote, David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me. Huh. Further along, when Solomon's grandson, Abijam, began to reign in Judah, he also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He began to turn away from the Lord and follow after false gods. And so once again, the Lord became very angry with him. And yet we read in 1 Kings 15.4 that nevertheless, for David's sake, not for his own sake, but for David's sake, God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem. Whew, amazing. But again, when Jerome, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign in Judah, he also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He turned away from God and followed after idols. And so because of this, the Lord appeared to him and he said to him, he said to him, I've become very angry with you. And yet we read in 2 Kings 8, 19, that God was unwilling to destroy Judah. He's actually unwilling to do it. Why? For the sake of his servant. Now you go ahead and study this out because this went on for about 300 years. Finally, after a long stretch of history, the nation of Assyria threatened to destroy the city of Jerusalem. A city that's, that's discipline was far overdue. And yet, nevertheless, God sent Isaiah the prophet, his messenger, to bring assurance to the king and their inhabitants, saying, I will surely rescue this city out of the hand of Assyria. Why? Say it, for the sake of my servant David. And so we see that because of God's favor upon one man, an entire nation of people was preserved for generations. And did you catch that? Can I say that to you again? Because of God's favor upon one man, an entire nation of people, we're talking thousands and thousands of people, was preserved for generations. You understand how strange that is? Let's put it into a modern context. Let's just say that next Sunday morning, President Barack Obama wakes up and there standing at the foot of the bed. His bed is the angel of the Lord. 
he's alarmed by this, just like you would be. And he's lying there, and the angel says to him, America is long overdue for judgment. But you know, for the sake of my servant, George Washington, I'm not going to do it. I think that would get his attention. Do you think that would get President Barack Obama's attention? I certainly hope it would. <laughs> An event like that. All of which raises the question, of course, why? Why did God do this for Israel, for David's sake? What was the reason for this? Hmm? Was it because of God's unchanging nature? Was it because of an unswerving commitment to keep his promises? Namely to David of an everlasting kingdom? Well, the scriptures do show us that faithfulness is one of God's primary characteristics. Once he has spoken, he doesn't change his mind. However, the scriptures also show us that there were times when God spoke similar promises to other kings in Israel, promises that were a lot like these, promises that ultimately never became fulfilled. Why? Because through disobedience, listen, through disobedience, the promises became void. Void. For example, returning once again to the story of Jeroboam, we are told that when God promised him that he would rule over the nation of Israel, he also brought him this oath. He said in 1 Kings eleven thirty-eight, he said, See, I will build a sure house for you. Listen, as I built for David. As I built for David had an everlasting house. And yet, because of his disobedience, the house of Jeroboam was eventually cut off. And we see that, p- that pattern repeated again in the life of King Jehu. Jehu, if you remember, just in case you don't know that name, Jehu was the man that was responsible for killing Queen Jezebel. Now, that ought to ring a bell. She was one of the most villainous characters in Israel's history. And so because this, the Lord appeared to Jehu and said, Splendid, very good. Because you have done what is right in my eyes, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. Now, if you look at Genesis 15 and you study what the word generation means in the Bible, you will discover that that promise could have eventuated in a 400-year dynasty for Jehu. And what you also find is that if you study out his lineage, after only 100 years, the house of Jehu was cut off. All of which raises the question, then what did make the difference for David? What made the difference for David? Why did God choose to deal differently with the whole nation just for his sake? The answer you see is really, really simple. God remained faithful to David because David remained faithful to God. All the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite, the Bible says, David walked in steadfastness. He was careful to keep all of God's commandments. He was faithful to walk in all of his ways. And so for this reason, the Lord declares in Psalm 89, a psalm, by the way, that is not written by David, he says, once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure before me forever. Forever. And ever. Do you still have 2 Samuel 7 open in your lap right now? Let's continue with the story here. And this is, this is where it's going to start to get profound. Look what it says here in verse 18. Look at David's response to the Lord's kindness. Look at this. It says, 
Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Where did he go? The tabernacle of God. It says, Then David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? He yet this is a small thing in your eyes, O Lord, for you've also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. And now listen to this part. Listen to it carefully. And this is instruction for mankind. Any confusion on anybody's faces here? Let me explain this. <laughs> Some of your Bibles render this, this verse just a little bit differently. The New International Version renders this as a question. Is this your typical way of dealing with mankind, O Lord? And the King James Bible says something similar, I believe. Now, I'm reading from the English Standard Bible, which I happen to believe captures it the best. Of course, I would say that the preacher's Bible is always the best one, right? I think this captures it the best. And let me explain to you why. Because the original Hebrew word that we find variously translated as manner, way, and instruction is the Hebrew word Torah. Now the Torah, that was David's Bible, if you remember. Amen? That was the scriptures that held the record of God's covenant with Abraham, his agreement with Israel, and so when you begin to understand this, you start to see that David is coming into a place of major insight in the spirit in this moment. And it's almost as though he's leaning out from the pages of the Bible and he's saying to us, Beloved, beloved, listen to me. All of humanity is going to understand how to live in covenant with God by looking at my life. This is instruction for mankind. And you know what? When you look at David's life and you compare it to the other kings in Israel, you can hardly argue with the man. This is instruction for mankind. Namely because it underscores a really important principle that we sometimes get uncomfortable with talking about in the church, and that is that this, this, this is the principle. God's covenantal promises are not unconditional. They're not. Listen, the Bible says in Zechariah 11.10 that God destroyed, God annulled His covenant with the people of Israel. God's covenant promises are not unconditional because they require a response of obedience on our part in order to become fulfilled. And not only that, but through disobedience, the promises can become void. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that seem... Unfair to some of you? Huh. I'll tell you what, for a lot of us, it probably does. Because a lot of us, particularly some of the tender young believers in this room, think to yourself, why would God give me promises which would be conditional? Isn't that like contrary to His nature? Isn't God Mr. Unconditional, right? Isn't everything in God unconditional? That's true depending upon what you're talking about. The calling that God had upon David and the covenant that he made with his people is conditional upon faith. And faith has works. The Bible makes a distinction between the works of the law and the works of faith. Correct? The works of the law, that's, that's what you're doing in your own strength to try to become righteous in a snobbish way before the eyes of God. But the works of faith are different. And if the works of faith aren't coming from your life, there's something wrong with your walk. 
And in that case, the things that God has promised you may not become fulfilled. And so what I want to do, just for the remainder of our time here, is to labor, to build into your heart a clear understanding of three things. If you're taking notes, you want to write this down. I want to talk about how God's covenant promises work. I want to talk about why obedience figures so strongly into that equation. And I want to talk about where the power to obey comes from. And here's the deal. If the idea of what I just said to you, if that just sounds so offensive that you cannot receive that, the idea that God would give conditional promises, I want to warn you, you may squirm just for a few minutes in your chair as we begin to come to the close of this message. But... If you are the type of person, I believe I'm standing before a lot of people who are like this. If you are the type of person that wants to go deeper in your relationship with God, no matter what the personal cost to you, I'd like for you to right now come into your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. So we're in 2 Samuel 7, now we're going to Deuteronomy 7. We all still together here? You all still together? So the women are with me, but not the men. Okay. You know, there's more women in church these days than men. Isn't that sad? Where are the men? Where are the godly men? <laughs> bored. Somebody said bored. I think you might be right. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Now, let me just basically in- introduce this for you. The book of Deuteronomy, this is Moses' swan song. Okay? It's kind of his last words to the nation of Israel before he dies to go be with the Lord. This is his very last message. And... Uh, In this sermon, he's preaching about the nature of this God whom the Israelites have covenanted with. And I want to look at what he says right here in the ninth verse because Moses makes a loaded statement. Look at this. Verse 9. He says to them, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Look at this. There are two important realities that we can see in this verse that are really important for us to understand. First, notice that it does not say that God makes His covenant with those who obey Him, but that God keeps His covenant with those who obey Him. Why is that important? Well, because it underscores the fact that we don't become obedient to God in order to enter into relationship with Him. Amen? That's why the Bible in the New Testament goes on to say in Ephesians 2.5 that God, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, in other words, while we were still disobedient to God, that nonetheless the Lord came and He raised us up together with Christ. And according to Romans 5.10, that work was gloriously accomplished for us while we were still enemies of God, right? So we don't become obedient to get into relationship with God. That's what's being said, right? However, what I've found in my case, in my life, and also in the lives of a lot of other Christians that I've talked to down through the years, I've been in ministry, full-time minister, about 13 years now, what I find in a lot of cases is that what a lot of believers struggle with is the idea that once you enter into covenant with God, that God expects you from that point on to begin to become obedient to Him. It's a timeless spiritual principle, and it spans both Testaments, Old and New. It's the reason that Jesus said to his disciples at the Last Supper, John 15, 10, he said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Now, the original Greek word there for abide is the word meno. It simply means to remain. So, in other words, Jesus is saying to us, you will remain in my covenant love if you obey me. Now, bear in mind, that's a 
a really important principle to remaining in covenant with God, which brings us to Moses' second point. One more time, look at this. Deuteronomy 7, 9. It says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Get this. If God only keeps His covenant with those who obey Him, that means He's not going to with those who disobey Him. Now, Billy Graham, during his time, was not the only person who was rising up as a famous platform evangelist. There were two others. One of them was named Harry Templeton, and I can't remember what... Do you remember what the other one was named, Paul? The other two didn't make it. One of them went on to publish a book about why he said goodbye to his Christian faith, became a well-renowned atheist. Graham was the one that thought they thought would not make it, by the way, because he was the least gifted as a preacher. But what did Billy Graham do? He remained faithful to the end. And that's what we're talking about here, remaining faithful to the end, like David remained faithful to the end. We also want to remain faithful to the end because look what happens to people who don't. Verse 10, and God repays to their face those who hate him. How? By destroying them. Now listen, we've already seen this to be true in the lives of King Jeroboam and King Jehu, right? To their disobedience, their lives were cut short, their God-given destinies never fully came about. But you know, I think the most sobering example of this has to be in the life of King Saul, Israel's first king. Can we look at this? Look at this, 1 Samuel 13. Just go ahead and flip there quick. 1 Samuel 13. Now look at this. I want you to understand what I am about to say to you. Because the scriptures reveal in what I'm about to show you here that once God had appointed Saul to be king over the nation of Israel, he intended for Saul to remain as king over Israel. This means, listen now, this means that God wanted to use Saul to build an everlasting kingdom. In that case, God might have caused the messianic promise to come through Saul's family which would have made Jesus the son of Saul. You know what this also means? It means that David, even though he was a man after God's heart, was not God's first choice for kingship in Israel. Saul was. But through his disobedience, he lost the promise. He lost the blessing, which evidently shifted to David. And when Saul disobeyed the Lord, this is what Samuel the prophet said. 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 13. It says, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which He commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. He could have got the promise. The one that all the Jews were sitting on for thousands of years. He could have got it, but it passed to David. Now, before we move on to the New Testament and start to talk about what Jesus says about all this, I just want to take a moment to look at David's sin. Because, you know, I've heard it emphasized amongst believers at times that because of David's various shortfalls, and there were a few, weren't there? Amen? We know that there were a few. Because of his various shortfalls, that the Lord upheld his covenant with David in spite of, not because of, his commitment to obey Jesus, to obey God. But, you know, I'll tell you something. That idea overlooks the times when David came to the wayward kings of Israel, and this is what he did. He boasted about David's obedience while he disciplined these kings. 
This is just one example. Don't turn there right now. This would take too much time, but I'm going to take the time to look at this. 1 Kings 14.8, when God came to Jeroboam once again, and he began to discipline him for the way that he was leading the nation away from God. This is what it says. It says, you've not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all of his heart. Listen, doing only that which was right in my eyes. So clearly, there was something that David was doing in his life, besides asking for forgiveness, that maintained that covenant promise. And I'll tell you something, as it was in David's case, so it is in our case. If we want God's covenant promises with us to be upheld, we've got to choose to obey Him. Now, in, the, in this, this whole pattern of this issue covenant, there are two things that happen in every single covenant. There's two parts. One of them is the terms of agreement, and the other one is blood sacrifice. And you see this in the case of Mount Sinai. Moses calls the children of Israel together. He says, hey, this is what God wants you to do if you're going to be holy and set apart for him if you're going to be in covenant relationship with him. This is what he expects of you. And he gave them the terms of agreement. Amen? Then what happened? The people agreed. They said, we will do everything that the Lord says. And so Moses says, okay, if you said that, blood sacrifice is next. And they slaughtered the lamb and sprinkled the people. In the New Testament, same principle. At the Last Supper, Jesus is with his disciples. He begins to explain to them the nature of this God whom they have come into covenant relationship with and what he expects of them. The, the disciples say, well, we believe everything you say now. Jesus goes and he says, Father, they, they believe everything I've told them. And then Good Friday comes, blood sacrifice. So let's look at this together. The Last Supper. Go to John. And this is where we're going to end. John chapter 15, please. Are we still all together here? I'm not saying this to beat anybody up. I hope that's, that's not what's being communicated here. I'm not trying to condemn you, but the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes whenever His Word is preached. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit is a powerful thing because it changes our lives. I'm hungry for His conviction. I don't know about you. John chapter 15, verse 10. This is what Jesus says. I quoted this verse to you earlier. He says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Notice what's being said here. He said, If you're going to abide in me, you've got to obey me. Oh. Oh my goodness. It stopped because I got a baby now, so it stops me whenever I hear that. <laughs> whenever I've heard abiding preached in the church, it's usually talked about this. It's usually talked about in these sorts of terms. It's talked about as resting in God. Raise your hand if you've heard that before. Abiding is resting. Abiding is resting. The only problem here is that's not quite what Jesus said. Now, don't get mad at me yet. I'm not saying abiding is not resting. I'm saying it's not only resting. It's not only resting. Because according to this verse, Jesus is saying it's obeying as well. If you keep my commandments, then you will abide in my love. It's obeying. What happens when we disobey? Look back at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Oh my goodness, look up at me. There's two levels of consequences that happen here when we disobey God. 
Here's the first. Number one, the branches are cut off. Right? The branches are cut off and gathered into a bundle. The second level is what? Thrown into the fire and burned. Jesus said every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire and burned. Correct. So this is talking about eternal judgment, right? But now listen to me. Neither being cut off nor being thrown into the fire and burned really needs to be the very first concern for the person that disobeys God and separates himself in this way. You know what the first concern ought to be? Spiritual deception. Let me tell you why. You'll discover this to be true when you buy your own house. Sarah and I, we bought our house, and uh, there's some trees on our property. So we trim the trees, right? Several times, you, you cut the branches shorter. Something that you'll notice, when you cut off that branch, it doesn't immediately wither, does it? Does it? No. Why? Because the life that was in that tree is still in that branch, correct? So for a time, it still looks green and lush. So when we disobey God and we go against the call of God in our lives, we disobey, what begins to happen? It's like, well, you know, nothing really changed. I mean, nothing happened, no bolt of lightning, nothing. I still feel kind of green. <laughs> still feel good. That's spiritual deception. That's spiritual deception. And so we need to be guarding against that. Don't take God's waiting to discipline you when you cross the line and disobey in ways that you shouldn't. Don't take that as being, oh, God, he doesn't really deal with sin that, that seriously. No, he's waiting to see what's going to happen with you. He's being merciful. He's not willing that any should perish. He wants all to reach repentance. This nation is crossing some significant lines now. And what's going to happen when guys like Billy Graham pass into eternity? What's going to be left in our nation? But I want you to look at, I said I would talk about three things, correct? The first one was what? How, God's covenant promises, how they work. Why does obedience figure so strongly? And what was the third thing? Can somebody tell me? Where does the power to obey come from? This is the insight that I'm going to go ahead and give you this to close it up. This is not an insight that was original to me. I, I want to give honor and respect to whom honor is due. There's a preacher by the name of John Bevere got this one. And so I, I want to just give the man honor. John chapter 14, verse 15, look at this. It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now there are two things that are being said there. Two very important things. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that if you love me, you'll prove you love me by obeying me. But that's not the only thing that he's saying. He's also saying something else that is, I think, perhaps more important to your life. And that is this. He's saying that if you, if you love me, then, in other words, after you've loved me, you will obey me. In other words, fall head over heels in love with God and you'll have no problem keeping his commandments. Fall in love with God and you will have no problem keeping his commandments. And here's why we're going to switch back to David. David understood this. Thousand years before Jesus ever said this explicitly, David understood it. He made a practice of loving God in worship. He had this lifestyle of, of going before the Lord and worshiping Jesus in the beauty of his holiness. He was, he was astonished by the love of God that had been shown in his life to make him king over the most amazing Nation ever holding all the covenants of God and all the promises. And David was astonished by this, evidently, because he lived a whole lifestyle 
basically of crying out to God, loving Him in this tent that was set up in the middle of Jerusalem. That's amazing. And that was the thing that he did that others didn't do. If you look, whenever the other kings fell away from the Lord and stopped worshiping God, stopped seeking God, one of the things that began to take place is they started to go away. They started to worship idols because their worship to God wasn't held secure. And then whenever there was a revival that took place in Israel, one of the first things they always did was they reset up David's tent and they reestablished the worship, the patterns of worship. And out of that worship, we get an entire book of the Bible. The book of Psalms was written. Now, in 1 Chronicles, I'm going to end this now. In 1 Chronicles, we read this statement. This is penned about 500 years after King David had died. It said, The eyes of the Lord range to and fro throughout the earth to find those whose hearts are blameless toward him. That verse tells me that hundreds of years after David was dead, God was still looking for the same quality of heart that David had. He was still looking for that same quality of heart that that wanted to love God and pursue God and worship God, that cultivates a lifestyle of worship. And I want to tell you something. For the sake of a man like that, God will save a nation like this. So when God's eyes are looking to and fro throughout the earth, wouldn't that he would find it? Wouldn't that he would find men and women whose hearts are committed to cultivating a lifestyle of worship and abandoned before the throne of God? And for the sake of such a people, would that God would not judge America for our many sins? But would that he would deal kindly with us for the sake of people like that. I tell you, I believe that one of the lessons that God wants to teach us when we look at a man like Billy Graham, we look at a guy like King David, when we think about our own lives, one of the things he wants to teach us is the value of daily coming before him. This is the most, the highest test of the Christian life is will you come before God every day of your life and collect the manna and the bread that he gives to you here? Will you seek him in a place of worship? Will you come to, will you cultivate a David tent in your own life, in your own secret place somewhere, off in some corner of your house? Are you going to do this all the days of your life? Seeking God in the splendor of His holiness. I hope that now that you see the impact, I tell you something, I don't know what Billy Graham's presence in this nation is doing in terms of holding back the hand of God for us. There's no question that we're living on borrowed time as a nation. But for the sake of people like this, God's going to save this nation and preserve it. And would that it would be preserved for future generations. I mean, I believe that the day of the Lord is soon at hand, but who knows what kind of a destiny America has yet to fulfill in this earth. Would you join me in a word of prayer and then we're going to... You got something? Okay. Heavenly Father, we, we pray, Father God, that we would come to see, Lord Jesus Christ, the great love that you have shown us. And like David, we will respond. Lord, that we would not hear this message as a message of condemnation, because that's not what this is, Lord. You're convicting our hearts. You're calling us not to the works of the law, but to the works of faith, Lord. 
to seek to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We pray, O Lord Jesus Christ, that you would take this message and seal it in our hearts. The seed has been sown, now produce fruit. 30, 60, and 100 fold. And Lord, would you preserve us, Lord Jesus, as a nation, Father God? Would you help us as individuals to make a difference, Lord, in our walk before you? We pray that you would do this in us in the name of Jesus. It's for his sake that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Just wanted to share, there, there are some different perspectives that we, we are Christians, we love Jesus, but we can have some different perspectives as to um, specifics of salvation. And, you know, Ben and I would both agree that we are saved by grace through faith, right? So that is grace. It's not by works, lest any man should boast. And depending on your Christian worldview, people will read the same scriptures and come to some different perspectives. And... Um, some people may have listened to what was shared today and and maybe get a little bit afraid, right? Um, I believe the new covenant is an everlasting covenant and that faith is going to produce works. Um, at the same time, every day I'm going to sin. That's just the reality. And it, it says in First John, if anybody says he's without sin, he deceives himself. The love of God is not in him. I've also studied... Um, the abiding in him, I actually preach a message on that as well. And to my perspective, it seems to be more of a relational term. Um, so I want to try and make a distinguish, uh, distinguish between the new covenant and how we relate with Jesus. I, there are times when I'm really close and intimate with the Lord. There are times when I feel more distant. And to abide is to dwell. There's different definitions in the Greek of what that means. Um, I believe that the righteousness that I walk in is inherited by Jesus on the cross and that all of my sins, past, present, future, are paid for. Um, That is what I hold to. I also believe that if I do screw up, which I do, Hebrews 12 says that the Lord disciplines those that he loves. Okay? I don't want to disobey God. But I don't want my reason to obey God to be anything less than love. I don't want fear to be the force that drives me to be obedient. I think that Satan would want us to respond in fear. Um, The Holy Spirit brings conviction. That's different from condemnation. Conviction is life-giving. Condemnation says, you're no good. You've got to look at yourself and your failures. Conviction says, Jesus paid it all. I know that I'm frail. I know that I'm weak. But if I look to him, he's going to give me the strength. I don't have to... I don't believe that I have to retain my salvation. I believe I have to walk out my salvation. But I believe that Jesus made a promise that we are justified. We're we're in the sanctification process and we will be glorified. But again, there are different perspectives um, that we can be brothers in the Lord and have some different perspectives on some of these issues. Let me be clear, actually, before we even move on. um, I agree completely, 100% with that, and nothing I said was against what you what you what you just said not not a, not a, you are you're not saved by works and I hope that you hear what I'm saying very clearly you are not saved by works you're saved by faith that that's absolutely true none of what I preached is against that and um, I think the main point of what I'm saying again is simply that as we cultivate a lifestyle of worship of coming before him wholeheartedly he secures something in our lives and not only for us 
but for the good of the people that are around us and maybe even our whole nation. So for me, it's a matter of where I'm looking. Where we close is in worship. The Bible says that beholding the Lord, we become like the Lord. If I look to the law to try to fulfill the law, I'm going to break the law. But if I turn away from that, this is the new covenant. The law is written in our hearts, and I find myself obeying by the grace of God in my life. So I turn away from even the law and look to the Lord, and the law is fulfilled, not by me, but in me, through the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's stand together. And what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to pray for you and then invite you to get in groups of, uh, of about four, groups of four. And uh, you can stay standing or you can sit down, find a comfortable place. But this becomes a prayer meeting now for the next few minutes. <clears throat> and I want you to pray for one another. Pray for that ability to finish strong. Pray for that confidence in the Spirit of God which dwells in you. Pray for that focus. I was talking to a man on Tuesday, a young man on Tuesday night who was struggling with uh, lust. And I said, it's a matter of focus. You can look at your sin and try to clean up your sin, and it's hard. It doesn't work. I used to do that. I tried to repent. I said, if you look away from that, we all looking to the Lord are being transformed. So let let that be your focus today. You're looking to the Lord, the one who can change you, the one who can empower you, the one who can give you obedience to fulfill everything he requires of you. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for your work within us. Thank you that you've written the law in our hearts. Thank you that you are the faithful one and you can can bring about faithfulness in our hearts. Thank you for the powerful Holy Spirit within us. That the law of God might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Thank you that you are fulfilling that inside of our hearts. Give us resolve. Give us a holy will. And give us confidence in your holy will that you are in fact doing it within us. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with his favor, grant you his peace in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Turn now to three or four with you and pray together. You can be seated. It might be easier if you're seated, but find a little group, little group of about four, four or five, better than two or three, and just take a moment, take five minutes, ten minutes, whatever to pray together for God's obedience to find expression in your life, for the faithfulness of God to bring about faithfulness in your heart.